Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, 
you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Martha, thanks so much. Tis Martha, yes. Martha, thanks so much for reading. That's terrific and reading so clearly. Now, this evening we're in the Turkish lakes. We're at what was once one of the major highway intersections of the ancient world. We are in the modern-day region of Isparta in Turkey. Pisidian Antioch, where the Apostle Paul is preaching here today, you'll find a small town of Yalvak. Maybe you've been on holiday there. And we're listening to the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul, and therefore we have the message that changed the world. In a sense, we are engaged this evening in really a rather an unusual exercise. Uh, I'm sure what we've just had read is actually only Paul's sermon notes recorded. I fully suspect he spoke for at least a couple of hours. I'm not planning to emulate him. But this evening we're going to have a sermon or a talk on a sermon. At first glance, a kind of skim read, it's possible to note three things. First, that God is the prime actor. You can't miss it. From verse 17 through to verse 23, there are 12 main verbs of which 11 of them, God is the subject. God chose, God led, God put up with, God gave, God gave. God raised up again and again and again. God is the prime actor. But then we see very quickly that right the way through this sermon, Jesus is the focus. Just look at verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And then from that point on, it's Jesus, 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 him, 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 all the way. God, the prime actor, Jesus, the key focus, salvation, the subject. And you've seen that from verse 23, a savior, Jesus Christ, as he promised. You see it again in verse 26. Uh, God has sent this message of salvation. In verse 32 and 33, we bring you literally the gospel that what God promised to his fathers, to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And then 38 and 39, it's crystal clear. This is a message of salvation. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, 
everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So God the prime mover, Jesus the key focus, salvation the main subject. I want to suggest that even in note form, the sermon is you know, kind of electric, it's really direct, it kind of hits you straight between the eyes. Sometimes when you're in church or you're listening to a talk, you can think, wow, it's as if the speaker was speaking directly to me. And right the way through this preaching, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. So look at verse 16, men of Israel. Look at verse 26, brothers. Look at verse 32, we bring you. Look at verse 38, let it be known to you, brothers. Salvation, the issue, Jesus, the focus, God, the author. Ask somebody, you know, that's fine. I can zone out for the next 20 minutes or so. I don't need salvation. I'm perfectly happy. Uh, this isn't about me. Great exercise in the study of ancient history. Fascinating sociological thing to understand. This great message that uh, spread like wildfire through Europe, and we're spreading even tonight. Great sociological exercise. Skilled oratory, at least on the part of Paul. Salvation? That's not for me. I don't need it. Hold on. I want to take you to the concluding statement of the sermon there in 39, one more time, 38 and 39, and read it to us. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that's through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Jesus, everyone who believes in Jesus is freed from everything from which you could never be freed by the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses is God's moral and spiritual standard. It's where God spells out what he expects and what he demands of men and women like you and me. The law of Moses contains the Ten Commandments. But the law of Moses is much, much more than just the Ten Commandments. The law of Moses demands that God's perfect standard be met the law of Moses insists that just judgment be delivered. And until we see God's standards, you know, it's possible for you and me, if we have a small view of God and a high view of ourselves, to consider that, well, do you know, all is well. I don't really need salvation. I'm, I'm perfectly decent enough. I'm certainly not as bad as the person sitting on my left or right. And anyway, my mum thinks I'm great. Yeah, the Conservative Party needs salvation. Spurs, after losing to Manchester United, they certainly need salvation. But for me, all is well. Many years ago, shortly after I left the military, I went to work for a school. I played a little bit of squash in my time in the army, socially, recreationally. I didn't think I was too bad. I used to win a few matches. I was very fit at the time. Things have gone horribly wrong since. At the school, there was a young lad, aged 15, and I have to say, you may not like me describing somebody like this, but at best, you had to say he was scrawny. He played squash in one of the school teams, but I didn't think it was a very key team. And anyway, he was only 15. And so I challenged him to a game of squash. Two games in, having failed to win a single point, you know how 
irritating it is in squash and the person stands in the middle and yours. My lungs were dragging several feet behind my body and he turned to me and said, oh, sir, would you like a lesson? <laughs> I could have strangled him. <laughs> but you know, you can kid yourself that all is well until you meet perfection. I don't need saving. What about God's law? What about God's standard? What about the first four of the Ten Commandments, which all have to do with our vertical relationship with God? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not create yourself at a graven image. You mustn't imagine your own ideas about God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. O Christ, O God, honor the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath. What about the... Six, horizontal commandments. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not steal. You shall not murder. You shall not covet. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not commit adultery. You see, the Lord not only demands perfection morally and spiritually, it also demands perfection judicially. God isn't like some kind of soft touch who allows wrong simply to be swept under the carpet. He actually says in the law, I shall not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Thank God that he shall not. Fear God that he shall not. In fact, in a sense, I want to suggest that we, of course, we need to go to God's law to see perfection. But in order to realize that we need and require salvation, each one of us, just put God's law to one side for one moment. Let's take even our own best standards that we set ourselves. Let's picture our own story. Do you know, we manicure it. We select images and achievements to post on it. We edit it. We brush it up, the best me. But what about the me that doesn't make it on to my story, my thoughts, my words, my deeds? In preparing to give these kind of talks, you, know, you cannot help but reflect on your own life from time to time. And out of the blue came to my memory an individual who aged around about 10 was part of our group of friends to whom we were unutterably unpleasant. And I'm sure you have very similar recollections of your own life. People of St. Helens, dear brothers and sisters, congregation gathered here on Sunday, whatever date it is, the 23rd of October, I bring you good news of salvation, that through Jesus... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Jesus, everyone who believes in Jesus is freed from everything from which you could never be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses had no means of absolute forgiveness and no means of bringing life from death. 
Well, let's track back through the sermon, shall we, for a few moments and look at it in a little bit more detail. There is the outline. We'll come back to verses 38 and 39 in a few minutes' time. But I want us to see first that God planned salvation, secondly, that Jesus delivered salvation, and third, that you and I can have salvation. God planned it. Jesus delivered it. We can have it. Verses 16 through 23 track the backstory of Jesus. It is a 145-word history of Israel up to the kingdom of Israel, and it is designed to zone in on Jesus. And all the way through, the one thing that Paul is interested in, in 16 through 23, is the coming of Jesus. Verse 17, Paul deals with the origin of Israel. God made these people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Verse 18, he deals with the foundation of Israel as God brings them out of Egypt and puts up with them in the desert. And then in verse 19, he deals with the land of Israel as God delivers to Israel the land in which they make their nation. And then in verse 21 through 22, God deals with the emergence of the kingdom, starting with Saul, the son of Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin, and then putting in place David, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. But Paul is driving to verse 23. Of this man's offspring, King David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. There is a savior. His name is Jesus. God promised him. Now, I think this is key for us to realize that Jesus did not come as a bolt from the blue. He was not unexpected. It's not as though God woke up one morning. Of course, I realize God doesn't do that sort of thing. But it's not as though God woke up one morning, looked out of his bathroom window as he was getting dressed, peered down onto planet Earth and thought, oh, things aren't going terribly well down there. I better do something about it. The backstory of Jesus is vital to the Jews and to us to realize that Jesus stepped in, if you like, to a grid a matrix, an expectation, an explanatory grid that enables us to understand who Jesus is. And in 145 words, Paul, to this knowledgeable congregation in the synagogue, reminds them of the backstory of Jesus and what they should have been expecting We run a Bible overview course here. It's around 30 weeks long, three 10-week terms. Term one is devoted to the first five books of the Bible. We don't get to the kingdom of Israel till halfway through term two. Paul does it in 145 words. I'm tempted to say, no, no, come and do the Bible overview. This was a very knowledgeable group who knew all the stuff in the synagogue. It's quite interesting that Saul, Paul doesn't even mention Moses at this stage. He's going to get to Moses, and when he gets to Moses, actually what he says is what the law cannot do. Is it because he was in the synagogue and he felt the Jews would have known all that stuff? Or is it because he considered first century Judaism, like quite a lot of 21st century Christianity, to be stuck in the law of Moses? 
Certainly, it's because Paul's message was to proclaim the kingdom. And he came to proclaim the kingdom of King Jesus and to make clear to us that God has sent a savior, a rescuer, and that savior rescuer is Jesus. God planned it. Jesus delivered it. Now, that's where Paul goes next. From 24 through 37, it's Jesus all the way. 24 and 25, you can see before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. That's John the Baptist preparing for him. 26 through 29, the Jews crucified Jesus. 30 to 33, God raises Jesus. And 34 through 37, the resurrection of Jesus confirms that Jesus is the king God promised to reign eternally and bring God's blessing to his people forever. Look at verse 27. It's a fascinating verse, 27 through 29. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Jesus. Though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Jesus, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, this is fascinating. The Jews of Jesus' day failed to make sense of their own scriptures. They failed to grasp who Jesus was. Knowing Jesus to be innocent, they crucified him. But by their act of defiant ignorance, they fulfilled the promises of their own scriptures. It's remarkable. I'm sure Paul spent quite a time on this. Such was the sovereign plan of God that even the wicked ignorance of men, failing absolutely to grasp the royal kingship of Jesus, accomplished the perfect salvation that God has planned, even as they sought to put Jesus to death. You couldn't make it up, could you? And I'm sure at that stage, the Apostle Paul will have spoken about Jesus dying on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. But, verse 30, God raised Jesus from the grave, and for many days he appeared. God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. And what Paul then does is to take three Old Testament scriptures, very much like Peter does back in Acts chapter 2. He takes three Old Testament scriptures just to make absolutely clear to us that Jesus is the one God promised because he was raised from the grave. Psalm 2, I have installed my king on my holy hill, says God. You are my son, today I've begotten you. God promised a king. Psalm 35, uh, sorry, Psalm 16, verse 35, you will not let your holy son see, your holy one see corruption. 
God's promise was that his king would reign eternally, never to die. He would be an everlasting king. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. David did see corruption. You can go and see his tomb today, by the way, King David's tomb in Jerusalem. Jesus didn't. There is no occupied tomb of Jesus. He rose victorious from the grave. And so given that God promised an eternal ruler who would never see corruption, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave and the historical evidence is there for you to examine demonstrates that he is God's everlasting king, God's ruler of you and of me. And his crucifixion shows that he has won forgiveness of sin and therefore the possibility for all of God's blessings to flow to you and to flow to me. And that's where Paul goes in the middle of the three quotes, verse 34, which is a quote from Isaiah 55, which is one of the most famous chapters of the Bible. And I want you to turn back to Isaiah 55 now, would you? And you'll find it on page 744. It's an absolutely brilliant chapter in the Bible. And it has a picture. I went to a great wedding last, yesterday, uh, afternoon and evening. It was absolutely terrific. The food, may I tell you, was epic. I don't know if any of you, and some of you were at another wedding somewhere else. So anyway, I'm sure the food was really good there. But where we were, I tell you, that was the place to be. The food was absolutely cracking. Uh, and there were a lot of other things that were good as well. I mean, the couple got married, and, you know, all the other things that were meant to, meant to happen. But look at this. Look, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You can have it for free. Why are you wasting your money on that which is not really bread? And why are you working so hard for stuff that just does not satisfy? Listen to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And here's the verse that he quotes. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So God has this glorious feast that he's planned for his people and he's inviting people to come to it. People with no money, people with nothing in their hand to bring. Keep people who are impoverished and cannot buy food for themselves. He said, come and buy this. Stop rushing after stuff that doesn't satisfy. I'm going to give you the sure promise that I made to King David. It'll be yours for free. And Paul takes that verse and that promise of the suffering servant king who will bring salvation. And he inserts it in between these verses on the kingship of Jesus, insisting that because Jesus has been raised from the grave, has won forgiveness, so then the promise of the glorious feast of all of God's blessing is offered free to anybody who will come to Jesus for it. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Jesus, anyone who believes in Jesus is freed 
from everything from which you could never be free. However hard you try, however hard you work by the law of Moses. So salvation, God planned it. Jesus delivered it. You can have it. We began by talking about salvation. I suggested someone might say, I don't need saving. We look briefly at the law of Moses. Someone once said to me that the law of Moses is a little bit like a mirror. It shows us what we're really like. I don't know how often you look in the mirror. But when you look in the mirror, you see things as they really are. You know, you can walk around all day with something stuck on your face, not realizing, and your friends who aren't friends, if they don't tell you, don't point it out. And then you come to the mirror in the evening, oh my goodness, look what I've been walking around like. The law acts as a mirror. It exposes the filth. The law acts as a benchmark. It sets God's perfect standard. The law acts as a spotlight. It shines into our soul. The law acts as an absolute. It shows us what is demanded. The trouble with a mirror on its own is it isn't able to deal with whatever it is that's kind of on our face. We, we need a, a basin, you know, to wash it off. And the law of Moses, well, it, it had no adequate basin, put it like that. No means of dealing with sin and death and judgment. It could show us what we were like. We would feel guilty. We'd go off and make animal sacrifice. They weren't adequate. It needed a true sacrifice that would pay for our sin and satisfy God's judgment at all that we've done wrong. And the glory of Jesus planned by God, is that he delivers salvation because he was sent to the cross where he carried God's judgment at all that we have done wrong. That explains the language Paul uses in verse 38. Do you see it there at the top of the page? Salvation, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by, every, by him and by him, everyone who believes is freed. The word is actually declared right. Everyone who believes in Jesus is declared right from everything which they could not be declared right from in the law of Moses. It's brilliantly put, isn't it? Because at the cross of Jesus, as he carried God's judgment in your place and mine, Facing death on our behalf out of his great love for us, he carried God's judgment that you deserve and I deserve. And so it is, it is as if, you know that famous hymn, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. No matter how many times we may say, that is not the person I am, or that is not the real me, the reality is, it is. Every one of us has this dark side, and God's just demand is found in God's perfect law, and God won't just airbrush it out, and our offense to God, and our acts of impurity in thought indeed, have to be dealt with justly. I will by no means acquit the guilty. 
And everybody who believes in Jesus is justified from everything from which you could not be justified, declared right, through the law of Moses. Do you know, you could walk away this evening, whatever you have done, whatever you're like, whatever your past, whatever people think of you, any one of us could walk away this evening with the chains broken with the weight gone, with the guilt dealt dealt with, with the punishment paid, knowing that we are freed from all that we have ever done wrong. God planned it. Jesus delivered it. You can have it. What is the Christian message then? Well, the Christian religion is primarily, first and foremost, a rescue mission from God to man. A message of salvation. God believes you need saving and are subject week by week, week by week, week by week. is not about what man is doing or what man can provide or what men and women can build themselves up to become. If we want views on finances, the pink pages, if we want opinions on the Conservative Party election, the leader columns, if we want social commentary the new statesman, the spectator, unheard, or whatever. Here on a Sunday, we're talking about salvation, a salvation from God for us, planned over the centuries, delivered by Jesus. And it's a glorious message for us to proclaim, and it is absolutely liberating. And without it, I'm afraid we will remain in chains for the rest of our life until we meet God in judgment. Allow me to lead us in prayer. God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. We praise you, our Father in heaven, for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that in love, You planned and purposed to send your only son into the world. We praise you that he came and that he subjected himself in obedience to you to the wickedness of humanity. We thank you that no human attempt could thwart your plan and purpose and that on the cross he won our salvation. We praise you that Jesus rose victorious and that we can have this salvation ourselves today. Thank you, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.